Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Eric Bonds. Eric Bonds is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He studies and writes about the oftentimes overlapping fields of human rights, war, militarism, and the environment. His work has appeared in Z Magazine, Foreign Policy in Focus, and numerous academic venues. Eric Bonds, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, very glad to, and I and I want to talk about uh, the overlap between the environment and the military, uh, which is not talked about enough, and uh, certainly in terms of activism, it's two completely different movements uh, without enough overlap. You, you wrote an article uh, recently in Foreign Policy in Focus called The Pentagon Comes Up Short on Climate. Uh, what was that about? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so right on, it, thinking about that overlap, that um you know, concerned about the environmental crisis we face just in, you know, so many ways that we look at it, we can see that humanity is facing a major environmental problem in terms of ocean acidification, biodiversity loss, the depletion of resources, and, and global warming. And I'm concerned about war and militarism because these are things that directly contribute to environmental degradation, but then there are also huge uh, resource sinks and just waste of resources that we could use to uh, otherwise create greener infrastructures and create more sustainable kinds of societies. So that's kind of what motivated my thinking in, in this foreign policy and focus piece about the climate or the Pentagon gets gets it wrong on climate because there have been a lot of reports coming from the Department of Defense and the Pentagon and its, its various branches in the military saying that global warming is a major national security threat. And so on, on one hand, that's really heartening, and I think that sometimes environmentalists um, you know, are, sort of cheer these, these kinds of reports because it says, look, to you know, folks that deny the reality of climate change, look, even the military is taking this seriously, and so you better take it seriously, too. And so on one side, that, that's kind of helpful, um, but I also worry about that kind of phrasing to call climate change a national security threat because it's using this kind of um, militarized worldview that isn't really looking at the roots of, of the problem. And in fact, when you look at these various reports, which I did, coming from the DOD and, and various branches in the military, they're talking about threats that they associate with climate change, but they're never actually talking about reducing carbon emissions, which is what's driving the problem in the first place. Instead, they're really talking about okay, we're going to be living in a more dangerous future. How do we continue to project U.S. power? And, you know, um, given all of the, the problems associated with, with global warming. And so what I, what I think would be a, a much more beneficial response to say, let's reduce this threat by reducing carbon emissions. And a major way that we could do that would be to heavily invest in public infrastructures. Um, in mass transit and you know recreating more sustainable kinds of communities and energy efficiency and this will in order to do this will require some investment from our government into our public infrastructures and a big chunk of money really could come from the money that we spend on militarism right now 
One of the things that I notice about the Pentagon's uh, way of talking about the climate as well is that it talks about uh, climate disasters and climate destruction producing war as if that were some sort of law of physics that you know you have a climate crisis therefore you have a war and there are environmentalists who talk this way too they say that climate change will create wars as if this is you know a stronger argument for addressing climate change but it seems to me uh, that that climate change and other disasters and conflicts will produce war only in uh, societies that accept war and use war as a tool for addressing conflicts. I mean, aren't we sort of being persuaded uh, that war is the inevitable result of uh, of crises uh, and and not just war, but U.S. foreign wars thousands of miles away uh, are are somehow the inevitable product of uh, of climate change. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and this is something that's worrisome to me. Um, we can see this even in how people are talking about, for instance, uh, you know, this, this terrible war in Syria, and, and some folks have pointed, you know, this is an outcome of, of climate change, or we can link this to climate change. And I think that that's hugely problematic for so many different reasons. Um, and there's also a, a real implicit kind of racism, I think, that's associated with this, or... Um, you know, kind of a, a colonialism sort of attitude that says that when poor people or people in the global south are faced with environmental change, when they're faced with environmental problems, then they sort of automatically or they naturally resort to weapons and to killing one another, um, whereas the assumption is that, you know, more civilized people supposedly in the global north, when we're faced with a, a climate crisis or environmental problems, that, you know, we respond to this in a more rational way. And um, that's just, you know, just factually wrong. That's just incorrect. But I agree that it, it comes with a, a, uh, uh, an implicit, I guess, uh, ideological message, though, that, that sort of says that we should really be preparing for more hostilities and more war in the future because of climate change. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, absolutely not a helpful kind of response, I think. Yeah, makes makes it worse. The, the another point that you make in, in your article about the Pentagon's uh, misguided viewing of of climate change is is that it seems like much of the U.S. government and much of the United Nations to to be planning for how to mitigate the damage and live better with with the changes that the climate disaster is bringing, rather than working to prevent it. Isn't that the emphasis that you that you see in the Pentagon's reports on climate change, for example, that that there is uh, all sorts of effort being put into how to survive, how to live with uh, the damage of climate change rather than how to prevent its worsening in the first place? Absolutely. Absolutely. That that is the focus is um, recognizing that this is a reality and to some degree that that is true because you know, we've already put a lot of carbon emissions into the atmosphere, and so a certain amount of climate change is just locked in no matter what we do right now. So to a certain degree, that's true. But it does seem that the assumption is that um, societies won't really get a grip on climate change, won't really begin to aggressively reduce carbon emissions. And so we should expect this more kind of catastrophic future ahead of us. And that is you know, not a foregone conclusion that that's really a political decision that's being made by powerful people, including, you know, people within our, our own government. And so, uh, you know, I, I really worry about that, too. And it's not just that they are, 
you know, planning for for climate change and for unmitigated climate change, but they're planning for it in this particular way to think about how can we continue to uh, exert you know, um, U.S. power and how can we continue to be a dominant military force in this this changing world. Yeah, and, and find more resources in the Arctic as the ice melts from the destruction of climate change that will be further worsened by those resources, <laughs> the fossil fuels pulled out of the... I mean, it's, it's absolutely backwards thinking in terms of addressing the problem. Um, right. The, uh, you, you cite a, a, a figure in, in your article, 4% of what is spent just on the Pentagon budget is what the U.S. spends currently on trying to to cut carbon emissions. Uh, I mean, in in a sense, you would like to see, uh, you know, you would like to see uh, climate change treated as a uh, as a threat uh, in the way that uh, that you know military opponents are treated as a threat. I would love to see France taking a uh, an all-on-board, no-holds-barred, uh, enthusiastic, massive investment in in pitiless uh, uh, addressing of climate change, war on climate change without pity and mercy. In, instead, uh, we just have these sort of, you know, halfway token efforts on climate change while the massive investment in war continues. Right, absolutely. And, and the, the U.S. military budget is just so big. It's just, I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it literally is so hard to get a handle on how big that budget actually is. But uh, Miriam Temberton at the Institute for Policy Studies does a, a great report every few years, and she just did one in 2014 last year called Climate vs. Combat. And that's where that figure about um, the, the 4% of U.S. spending on energy efficiency and uh, emissions reductions and renewable energy um, in comparison to U.S. spending on, on the military. So, yeah, absolutely. That yeah, Miriam has, has been a guest on, here. She, okay, she's yeah, a, she's right, a good resource. Absolutely right. So I'd, I would really encourage people to go and check out that report. Um, and she has some great um, figures that kind of narrow that down a little bit, just to say that if the U.S. government, for instance, chose to forego four littoral combat ships, that we could use that money instead to double the Department of Energy's spending on renewable energy and energy efficiency. Just you know, just by that one choice, yeah. we'll go four, four ships. Four ships. The Pentagon says we don't need. Yeah, incredible. The and the Pentagon does talk occasionally about you know efforts to green the military in in very slight ways, but it is by the figures I've seen the top single consumer of petroleum and and would rank number thirty something in a list of nations if it were a nation in terms of petroleum consumption. Does does that sound right to you in terms of the absolutely yeah uh, right? It's I mean when we think about it, it's global footprint with bases you know, all around the globe, and when we think about these, these you know, huge m- kinds of machinery that they're operating, it's so resource-intensive, so energy-intensive, absolutely. So they're a major user of, uh, of fossil fuels, absolutely. It, it seems uh, very symbolic as well as substantive uh, in its significance to me that they're canceling 
protests in Paris, France, around the uh, the climate talks, uh, in, in order to focus on escalating a war and uh, and the fear and the scaling back of civil liberties around uh, militarization of France. Um, it, it, it seems that the two are are quite opposed in this way. We can't we can't work on protecting the environment because we're too busy working on war, just as we can't spend the money on the environment because it's all got to go to war. Um, We're speaking with Eric Bonds, who is an associate professor of sociology at Mary Washington University here in Virginia, where I am as well. Uh, There's another great article that you wrote, Eric, called The Wastes of War in Iraq and Afghanistan. This was in Z Magazine. Um, Can you talk about the particular types of environmental destruction you looked at in those wars beyond just the the burning of gasoline? Right, absolutely. That um, Wars are in, inherently destructive to the environment, but there's this, you know, one particular kind of environmental degradation that's been getting a little bit more attention in terms of the U.S. military's waste disposal practices in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that uh, the majority of, of waste that the, the DOD produced in those countries during the, the occupations were burned in open pits or trenches, just out in the open air, including you know all kinds of highly processed industrial kinds of materials that we all know are, are not healthy things to burn. Lots of plastic, lots of styrofoam, and other kinds of packaging materials, even solvents and um, other kinds of chemicals. Um, I mean, and so there were some reports that, uh, you know, even, even body parts were included in these. This is something that's gotten attention um, from, from amputations and things like that. So it just all of the waste that was, was being produced at many bases was just thrown into these burn pits, um, producing all kinds of, of hazardous emissions. And we all know that burning trash in the backyard is not good. We can go to the EPA's website, and it'll tell us not to do this, that this is associated with, with all kinds of known toxins, including dioxin, which is one of the most toxic substances, really, that we know about. Um, so on one hand, we know this information, but yet this is exactly how the U.S. military was disposing of its waste. And so it shouldn't have you know, been too surprising that veterans came back from Iraq and Afghanistan and reported being very sick, having respiratory problems, having uh, immune deficiency kinds of problems, experiencing chronic fatigue, development of tumors, and things like that. And it was through this process where veterans were talking to one another, sharing their experiences, when they were able to realize that they had a, a kind of a common environmental exposure to these toxic fumes from the burn pits. And they you know, have developed a movement to try to secure some compensation and some justice for being exposed to these to these toxins. And so that's really what my research looks at, is a kind of media response. And it's, it's very important that the media has begun to cover um, how veterans have been harmed by this pollution. But I also have noticed this really troubling thing in that the U.S. media, just looking at, at mainstream newspapers, um, but also we could look at, at television network reports, just really largely ignores any kind of potential civilian impacts. And, and this was, I think you said, uh, about 10 pounds of, of waste per troop at, at bases in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is that right? 
That's right, exactly. So this is the it. vast majority of which was put into into these open open pit burns. So um, just to get it give a sense, you know, I mean, we're thinking about say a place in, in Iraq where in the summertime it would be very hot, and so people would need to be drinking a lot of water. Most of that's coming from water water bottles, and so in a place like the Balad base that had twenty two twenty two thousand service members at its peak, all of the water bottles that those people are drinking are just going right into an open pit burn. So they're literally burning tens of thousands of water bottles every single day, um, along with a lot of other hazards. <laughs> Toxic plastic made from the stuff they're there to fight the war for, uh, bringing their consumptive U.S. lifestyle there and the military's lack of concern for their health. Uh, along with it, uh, and and burning yeah. that stuff in the air. What what about the damage to Iraqis and Afghans as well? Right, and that's that's largely the unknown, and that's just not even been part of the conversation so far. Which is why I'm so so happy to be on the show to to have a chance to to talk about it. And that one thing that I, I did in my research beyond just doing this kind of analysis of U.S. media reporting and noting how civilians have been totally left out of the picture, was just to look at bases where I could find out that there was some kind of long-term open burn pit, and then just to use Google Earth and the satellite images there, then to look at what's around it. And we can see in many bases, you know, these are populated areas uh, around the bases that sometimes we have this imagery in the United States of Iraq and Afghanistan of being uh, uninhabited desert spaces, but that's not at all the case around many places where there were U.S. bases. So the, uh, the, the Blod base, for instance, was one of the largest U.S. bases, and if you look at it uh, on Google Earth, you'll see that it has the cultivation all around it, has agriculture all around it. Uh, it's less than a mile from the Tigris River. There are uh, you know, little townships and, and houses all around it. So absolutely, if, if uh, veterans were being exposed to this pollution and made sick, which, you know, I've, I very much believe is true. It really stands to reason, though, that, that Iraqis and in Afghanistan, Afghans would be similarly harmed. You have to imagine so. I mean, I've spoken with Iraqi doctors who've done studies, uh, but most of them in in cities that, that were attacked, like Fallujah, and they're attributing a lot of the epidemics that they see to things like uh, depleted uranium weapons, uh, not necessarily to, uh, to open-air burns uh, at U.S. bases. Um, have, have there not been... Uh, any uh, comprehensive studies or, or major studies uh, in Iraq or um, by the U.S. military of, of this problem? Uh, you know, there have been some studies, but it's difficult to, to trace, I guess, the, to trace the causality. Um, but certainly there, you know, has been, there have been studies uh, that have documented you know, certain kinds of heavy metals in Iraqi children and showing that that's highly associated with, with birth defects, for instance. But you're absolutely right in that there were a number of environmental harms happening in, in Iraq, for instance. And so um, a lot of these things, they, they interact, and it's not just one thing that might be affecting uh, environmental health and public health interact that these things can kind of combine and have even more deleterious kinds of impacts. 
But you, you did find a, quite a few, you know, published uh, newspaper stories uh, about U.S. war veterans' uh, particular uh, individual experiences. Um, what, what have uh, those stories looked like, and what has been the response uh, to the demands of veterans from the Department of So-Called Defense and the, the Veterans Administration? Right. So I found 49 studies that in, in just major U.S. newspapers. And, you know, almost across the board, there was not even a mention of civilians. There were a, a few, I think maybe five, that had one sentence just that, that just might have mentioned civilians. Uh, and there was one story, and it was covering uh, uh, basically a peace movement that was that was talking about the environmental impacts of the war in Iraq and included the issue of burn pits. So almost across the board, there was really no mention, hardly any mention of, of civilians. I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? Yeah. Uh, you uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I think that that, that was helpful, but I, I'm, I'm wondering... Oh, I, the response of, of the government, I'm sorry. Sure. That, um, you know, veterans have been able to come together and have been able to find supporters in Congress in order to at least achieve some kind of recognition. And so one thing that happened in 2013 is that the U.S. Congress passed a, a so-called burn pit registry where veterans who feel like they might have been exposed to burn pit emissions or who might be you know, feeling uh, that they've been harmed in some way can go to a, a VA website and they can go and, and basically enter their names and enter their experiences and any medical conditions and things like that. And the idea is is that this should provide some means to to, to study and to, to prove that there is or could be a link between this kind of environmental exposure and negative health outcomes. And so that's really, uh, you know, I think that one, one kind of response from, from our U.S. government, but the U.S. government really has been hesitant to acknowledge harm, and it has been making steps to acknowledge harm, but it still is doing so in a way that um, is trying to deflect responsibility, trying to deflect blame by saying, well, sure, some people might have been made sick, but we can't really know because it's so complicated and there's so many other kinds of environmental factors that could make a, make a veteran sick. Um, so on one hand, the, the, the uh, U.S. government is, is trying to dissuade veterans um, from filing claims and from, you know, associated environmental exposures from their illnesses. On the other hand, there is a kind of recognition, but for uh, Iraqi civilians or Afghans who might have been living near U.S. bases and burn pits, you know, there's, there's really been no U.S. government response. Yeah, yeah, you brought up, I think, the comparison with Agent Orange on perhaps a larger scale uh, in the case of Agent Orange. But what are the what are the similarities? I mean, this is a case that is still crying out for justice half a century later, uh, and is of course affecting children and grandchildren. Are there are there are there any instances uh, of the possibility of of this uh, of illnesses from the from the burns being passed down to children? Right, absolutely. With something like a, you know, exposure to dioxin, that this isn't just something that affects one generation. That this is something that uh, can have genetic impacts that can be passed down to subsequent generations. Um, and you know, that's true too. If something like dioxin gets into the 
gets into a food chain too, that it can be digested, you know, uh, or ingested um, even in, in future generations and to continue to cause harms. So for certain, that's, that's a real concern. Um, and I should say, too, that I was sort of noticing and in, in looking at the media coverage of this story that veterans themselves were sort of talking about this, making this analogy that there's a comparison here with Agent Orange. And I think that that comes from this experience of being a veteran and being a, most likely a young person, a person that you know, was very healthy, and when, when going to war and then coming back you know, really sick and not being able to explain that, and that's very much the, the kind of experience that Vietnam veterans had but also the experience of doctors saying, you know, it's all in your head, or we can't explain it, we don't know what's going on. So those are the kinds of similarities, I think, that, that veterans were experiencing in saying that we need to avoid that kind of response again, that the medical establishment, the U.S. government, better do a better, better, do a, a better job of taking these kinds of claims more seriously to begin with. Um, what I see is, Another troubling analogy is exactly the one that you mentioned, in that eventually the U.S. government did award compensation and uh, some medical care to veterans who were harmed by Agent Orange, although it was way too little and way too late. But, you know, other than cleaning up one especially polluted place, the U.S. government has never compensated other people in Vietnam for spraying Agent Orange and other dachshund-laced herbicides across their landscapes. And so I'm, I'm afraid that we're on that same kind of track, too, which I, th- I think we sh- need to acknowledge the harm done to veterans, but at the same time we need to acknowledge the harm done to civilians and work to provide health care and compensation to both groups. Yeah, we, we've got uh, war being extended over there rather than compensation or restitution right. at this point. Um, I, right. You know, we, we often think about war as happening so far away and these things being rather hard to study and mysterious because they're thousands of miles away. But I back in January of this year, I had a guest on this program named Brian Salvatore from Louisiana who was busy actively trying to prevent a huge open-air burning by the U.S. military of explosives in Louisiana near a poor African-American neighborhood, uh, surprisingly enough. Uh, And uh, there seemed to be no connection there with the peace movement or veterans. Uh, It seemed to be a local and environmental effort uh, to prevent this open-air burning. But do you think there should be more of a focus on uh, on trying to get careful study uh, of the results when these things are done uh, in the United States, uh, where they can be, where they can be observed by U.S. academics. Right, right, absolutely, and just uh, along with recognition that war causes environmental degradation across the board, and so absolutely during war and in the aftermath of war, in you know in the context of the U.S. overseas, but also just the everyday ongoing preparation for war is horribly environmentally destructive because um, you know, producing weapons requires all of this toxic materials and so it you know, creates a legacy of environmental pollution that the Department of Defense owns, for instance, and manages 140 separate Superfund sites. Um, but then also, in, you know, when weapon systems are outmoded or retired, then you have all of these, these toxic hazards that you have to deal with. 
And so that's something that the DOD constantly faces. What do we do with all these old weapons? And one of the responses has been to burn them um, in, or to explode them out in the open, um, you know, again, creating more environmental hazards. So I think just starting with that recognition of that across the board, war is bad for the environment would be one, one good place to start. Well, and your bringing of these two issues together is a very good start, and I hope that activist movements follow suit and, and join together more often and in a, in a more lasting way. Uh, Eric Bonds is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. We will have links to, to him and his articles at talknationradio.org. Eric, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.